1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The nation's capital is about as crowded as it has been since the last time the IMF and World Bank came to town. For locals, and some people actually do live here, it's an endless parade of motorcades and street closures for the world. Hopefully some solutions to the economic challenges facing so many nations. And the spring meetings begin with a warning, the IMF cutting its global growth projections, warning of high uncertainty and risks as stress from the banking sector adds to pressure from all the interest rate hikes, tighter monetary policy, not to mention Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is all familiar ground for Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who spoke to reporters this morning in
3: Washington. For over a year now, the world has contended with the negative consequences of Russia's illegal war against Ukraine. Many countries are still recovering from the pandemic shock, and in some countries, including the United States, there have been recent pressures on our banking systems. I've been in close communication with my counterparts over the past few weeks on these developments, and I look forward to continuing that dialogue this week.
2: Janet Yellen speaking just in the last hour or so in Washington. And that's where we begin with Maurice Obstfeld, former chief economist at the IMF, now professor of economics at the University of California, Berkeley. Professor, it's great to have you. Welcome back to Bloomberg. How concerned are you about this forecast as we look out five years, knowing that central banks, including the Fed,
4: are likely to keep hiking rates? I think it is worrisome. The IMF. Uh, marginally reduce their global growth forecast. But the warnings about risks that are out there are extremely significant. Uh, They estimate a one in four chance of uh, global recession, global growth below 2%. So that's something that should worry everyone.
2: Well, and these are risks that we uh, may not be seeing ease anytime soon. I realize monetary policy is one thing. But the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and some of the other uncertainties out there uh, could last some time, though. No?
4: Yeah, I think the immediate impact of the invasion has dissipated, but there is still the risk of an escalation of the conflict going forward. Uh, there are financial risks. Uh, the immediate concerns over the spillovers from Silicon Valley Bank have receded, but uh, we can't be confident that uh, this will not come back. The, uh, you know, the blood is in the water, and uh, sharks are definitely <laughs> circling out there. Finally, there's the, uh, the persistence of inflation, which the yes, right. IMF now thinks will be greater than they thought in January.
2: So let's pick through these a little bit, and we may as well start where you just ended with inflation. How is that the case when we're starting to hear even from Janet Yellen today and I can I can play your her words for you, suggesting that you know what we might well be over the worst of this. We're actually starting to see inflation easing. How does that rationalize itself with what we're hearing from the IMF?
4: Well, the the the, the relatively favor flavorable um, headline growth forecast is a is a two edged weapon. <laughs> Here, because you know, on the one hand, it, it's great that that recession may not be imminent, but on the other hand, uh, the the continuing strength of uh, uh, consumption, of labor markets, mm-hmm. um, the continuing ease of financial conditions, which the the Fund's Global Financial Stability Report points to, all are factors that uh, will keep inflation from falling sharply further. I mean, we've certainly had a benefit from the the easing of supply chain pressures, from some easing of energy and food prices, but core inflation in um, services remains high, and getting that down to be consistent with uh, 2% inflation targets is going to be hard work without a harder landing than the fund is now forecasting.
2: Mm -hmm. You add the wild card of a reopening china and all bets are off Here, here's what janet yellen said about uh, the inflationary component earlier today
3: prices of commodities like food and energy have stabilized supply chain pressures continue to ease and global growth projections remain higher than they were in the fall this progress is due in part to the steps we've taken Those include macroeconomic policies within our own borders and joint actions like the Black Sea Grain Initiative that have helped lower food costs. So
2: is her optimism uh, founded in facts, Maurice? Uh,
4: I think it's an optimistic reading of of where we're going. The the scenario of rapidly falling inflation is certainly possible. That seems to be what the markets uh, uh, like to, to cling to but uh I think in reality uh there there could be some some more severe challenges than um, secretary allen is uh, is recognizing and again sure. the the you know the strength of labor markets i mean look at look at where unemployment rates are mm-hmm. uh, not just in the u s but you know go to australia the 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 uh, unemployment rate there is at a fifty year low of three point five percent so it's hard to see how That is consistent with returning quickly to 2% inflation. Mm -hmm. Sure, there was a bulge in inflation in the U.S. Um, It has come down, but there is a stubborn core that remains. And if central banks want to complete the work, they will have to keep interest rates a bit higher and for longer. And that will inevitably uh, have some negative effect on growth going forward. Maybe not to the level of creating recession, but certainly, to the level of keeping growth beyond trend for some time.
2: When we but get back, other risks. But when we get back to the risk of war and the impact of Russia's invasion in Ukraine, knowing the the way it exacerbated supply chain problems uh, for food and and so many uh, uh-huh. other raw materials, that's not over, Professor. And I wonder how does the IMF gauge something like that in its forecast? realizing the uncertainty that surrounds just about every decision Vladimir Putin makes? Yeah.
4: Well, you know, Russia has, of course, threatened to back out of the uh, the uh, uh, grain export deal. Yeah. Um, OPEC has has uh, just decided to restrict supply further to try to raise the global oil price. Uh, these are all wild cards. Um, you know, it's important to realize what an IMF forecast is. It, it doesn't necessarily take into account all eventualities. It's a median forecast. It's a it's a projection of what they think mm-hmm. is, is the most likely outcome. But they always caveat that with downside or upside scenarios, which in their view have lower probability, but could definitely um, occur. And what's worrisome about their downside scenarios is that A, they're pretty grim, and B, they're not in the fund's estimation, low probability events. As I said, you know, 25% chance of global recession, mm-hmm. uh, 15% chance of a uh, uh, a uh, risk-off event in financial markets, which could uh, destabilize those markets and also uh, lead to lower growth. So there's nothing to be complacent about in this forecast.
2: And, Wait, uh, sure. Sounds it, like
4: it. Yeah, I mean, you know. Secretary Yellen rightly highlights um, the the positive side of what has happened, and there's much that is positive compared to a year ago, but there are challenges ahead.
2: You're the former chief economist for the IMF. You know what these meetings are all about. What should people here in the U.S. expect to come from them?
4: Well, aside from the uh, IMF's uh, invaluable forecasts, uh th- there is also the meeting of the uh the uh, G20 finance ministers and central bankers mm-hmm. and here there are um a number of collective challenges that face the global community uh uh climate is one of them health is one of them uh the next pandemic is certainly uh on the horizon somewhere and uh very important is uh progress on uh Uh, the the, uh, restructuring architecture for developing country debts, particularly um, lower and lower middle-income countries, some of which are under intense pressure now as interest rates rise. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a common framework that the G20 agreed to, but it's been slow in implementation. It's not very comprehensive in terms of country coverage or bringing in private creditors, and it's been consistently falling afoul of China's unwillingness to restructure its extensive debts to uh, poorer countries, where it is the biggest official lender.
2: Do you expect more than another interest rate hike, as the market is predicting from the Fed? Most seem to say 25 basis points in May, and then they hold for the rest of the year. Does that sound like reality if there's a chance for a recession in the the second half?
4: I think we'll have to see what the inflation numbers look like and how economic activity in the U.S. uh, responds. I think Mm -hmm. I think a a, a slowly slowing labor market is what the Fed is trying to uh, uh, achieve. And we may have seen some evidence of that in the last jobs report from the U.S., but remember, that level of jobs creation is not what we would expect for a slowing economy. That is what we would expect under normal growth conditions. In right. fact, it's a little bit stronger stronger than that. So the Fed is definitely not in a place where they would be willing to cut. And uh, I think they'd need to see a much stronger evidence of a labor market slowdown before they'd be willing to do that. I don't know if that's going to be coming this year or not.
2: I hope the markets are listening to you, Professor. Uh, it's great to spend some time with you. Maurice Obstfeld, the former chief economist of the IMF, now professor of economics at the University of California, Berkeley.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio The TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com and the Bloomberg Business app You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130
2: So it's on to Chicago. The DNC, the Democratic National Convention, indeed, will be in the Windy City. And you better believe the RNC is already talking about it. Of course, they're going to Milwaukee, right? Ronan McDaniel, who, of course, chairs the Republican National Committee, out with a statement, quote, we look forward to the DNC's convention, where their radical agenda will be on full display for the world to see. She writes, voters will soundly reject whichever out-of-touch liberal the Democrats nominate in Chicago. Of course, Joe Biden hasn't announced. She didn't write that. I said that. And instead, elect our Republican nominee as the next president of the United States. Let's reassemble the panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. We talked about this uh, when we knew there was a choice. Of course, it could have been Atlanta. It could have been New York. But it's Chicago. Jeannie Shanzano, the right choice.
5: I think so. And Joe, I thought you were going to come in with a Chicago song, but I can't. I don't know a Chicago song, so you'll have to fill oh, me in. Oh, we'll take
2: care of that. Don't worry.
5: Please, you always do. I'm thinking the bean. I'm thinking deep dish. It's going to be great in Chicago. It's all about the Midwest for the both bean. parties and. The bean, I love the bean. I love Chicago. I do think it's a really smart choice. As much as I love my own city of New York City, I think this is a smart choice. It is going to be all about the Midwest. Chicago has done this 11 times already. We're going to forget about 1968. Well, that's that right. A You've got showing. not only
2: the taint of 1968 and a lot of bad memories, Jeannie, but I thought Georgia was the future of the Democratic Party.
5: Well, you know, everything's going through the Midwest. That's how he won in 2020. They want to repeat that in 24. Plus, we have a very, very friendly city in Chicago, maybe a bit friendlier than we have in the state of Georgia in terms of the mayor and the governor of Illinois. So I think the push was out there for Chicago, hmm. and it is going to go head-to-head with the, de- with the Republicans, rather, in the Midwest. Plus, Joe Matthew, it's happening over my birthday weekend. I couldn't be more excited <laughs> or weak. Well, so I hope I'm I see you in. there.
2: We're going to we're going oh, to have to so. have a cake for Jeannie. Rick, though, you know what? All the reporting when we especially when we come up to convention time, it's going to be this split screen thing with images of 1968 and, and putting that against the madness of today. Was that the right choice when Atlanta seemed to have so much promise, at least from what I hear from Democrats? That's the future
6: It's a horrible choice. I hate to disagree with Jeannie, but, uh, you know, it, first of all, Chicago's their reputation couldn't be worse. You know, businesses are leaving in droves. They have a high crime rate. They just elected a mayor who's representative of the, you know, defund the police movement. I mean, it's just a disaster. And they're not going to lose Illinois. They're going to spend $100 million in a state that they know they're going to win anyway. And so I look at this as a political practitioner of old and say— Oh, would that hundred million be better spent in a really important, critical swing state like Georgia, like Georgia, which was the only reason that he is actually president of the United States today? I mean, like, I don't get it. I mean, wow. I th- I obviously, the political team was out to lunch when they made this decision.
2: How did Democrats frame this then, knowing that's going to be the reaction, Genie? How do they pull this off and blunt the nineteen sixty eight impact?
5: Well, you know, they've done it 11 times out there. So one time out of 11 is not so bad. You know, we're going to make Rick... a, 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 you know, favorite fan of Chicago as we go forward. Um, You know, listen, I think they really do feel that the Midwest is where it is all at. And, you know, he did win Georgia, rightly so, and they feel prepared that they could do it again. But they do think that they have to make a play for the Midwest, and he has to win Pennsylvania, he has to win Wisconsin, Michigan. I agree he will win Illinois. I think he'll win all of them if he's facing Donald Trump. Hmm. But I do think this is a smart decision I think Atlanta would have been a good decision as well, but I do think it makes sense. It's going to come a month after the Republicans have their showing out in the Midwest and Chicago. I would just say one thing. The newly elected mayor out there is not a defund the police guy. He's not quite as sort of lefty as um, some people have suggested. I think we have to see him in action.
2: Well, you know, what is going to be going to New York is the next field hearing uh, by the Republican led Judiciary Committee, the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan is headed for Lower Manhattan Monday morning to hold a field hearing on crime, on violence in New York City. A pretty remarkable move here, and there's talk that uh, Eric Adams, the mayor, might even show up himself to refute this. We know that Jerry Nadler is planning to be there. He's the panel's ranking member, but there's going to be a more concerted response here. What's the Republican committee doing in this case, Rick? Why travel to New York for this conversation?
6: Uh, it's just grandstanding, you know, in the age of investigations that we're now in. Everybody's got to have one. Uh, and I have no doubt that this is a reaction to to, you know, President Trump's indictment by the Manhattan D.A. They're, they've already mm-hmm. expressed an interest in finding out if there are any federal funds that were used in the effort to, you know, indict Donald Trump. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's just a, it's just another grandstanding move while we have things that need to be done in Washington. You have a debt ceiling that needs to be increased. We have budgets that need to be tackled. Uh, We have, you know, field trips like this that really literally will amount to nothing other than a couple of headlines. And my suspicion is those headlines will be mixed even if they have a good day uh, on the Republican side.
2: The Judiciary Committee tweeted, Jeannie, the hearing advisory, 9 a.m., Monday morning, April 17, field hearing on victims of violent crime in Manhattan. Of course, they want Alvin Bragg to come down, and Alvin Bragg replied on Twitter. And spun this story around. He says, don't be fooled. The House GOP is coming to the safest big city in America for a political stunt. He goes on to write murders are down 14 percent in Manhattan, shootings down 17 percent, burglaries down 21 percent, robberies down 8 percent. It would be more dangerous to hold this hearing, he says, in Columbus, Ohio. Is he right?
5: You know, I think it's showing that the Democrats are not going to do what they did when the field trip took them out to the issue of immigration out out in the west. Well, they they didn't, are show going up. To, they didn't show up and and you know, I think in this case as you mentioned it's Jerry Nadler's home city. He is, they are going to be there in full force. And, you know, I think this is a risky strategy for Jim Jordan. He feels confident. He's a smart, he's an able guy that he can go head to head with people like Mayor Adams and whoever else they invite to testify. Mm-hmm. But it is a risky strategy because Democrats are going to meet them. And guess what they're going to talk about? They're going to talk about the resistance about addressing the issue of guns, semi-automatic guns. They're going to raise what happened yesterday in Louisville. They're going to raise the children shot in their schools. And they're going to say, if you're so concerned about crime, and we trust you are, why don't we take some common sense steps on gun control? Why don't you follow us there? And so I do think this is a risky strategy for Jim Jordan. It is going to be at the Javits Center, and everybody is going to be following it. It's going to be yeah. another busy day in in Manhattan.
6: God knows it.
2: Uh, meantime, as we spend time with Rick and Jeannie, we have to acknowledge what happened yesterday in Tennessee. We were right in the middle of Balance of Power when we learned that Justin Jones, the state rep, one of the three, one of the Tennessee three, had been reinstated. The sound of him being sworn in. Yeah! And the reaction outdoors when this took place, he spoke to those in the house after.
4: I, I want to welcome democracy back to the people's house. That on last Thursday, members of this body tried to crucify democracy, but today we stand as a witness of a resurrection of a movement of a multiracial democracy that no unjust decision will stand.
2: Justin Jones speaking after uh, the city council, in fact, the Nashville Metropolitan Council voted to return him to the seat he was expelled from literally hours earlier. It was only a couple of days. Rick, this stuff moves pretty quick. They just made a political celebrity out of at least one of the Justins.
6: Yeah, I think the Republicans are doing a really good job of elevating Democrats these days and uh, and they certainly did that in the in the legislature there. And, and my suspicion is tomorrow the same will happen with the other Justin yes who uh, goes before his council to be reinstated and the two will be both by the, by the weekend within one week standing on the, the, the state House floor uh, once again reinstated as members. Uh, And so all this will have just inured to the benefit of the Democratic Party uh, of uh, Tennessee. So uh, I I really scratched my head wondering, you know, what brilliant tactician, you know, in the House rules uh, in Tennessee legislature decided this was such a great idea to uh, to expel these these gentlemen. So, uh, you know, another another example, you know, where uh, if you have all the power. Uh, sometimes you have to sit back and say, well, we just don't want to use it today. And in a, in a one party town, um, you know, they've done it to themselves.
2: So with just a minute left here, Jeannie, is this a story of overreach or something worse?
5: It's overreach. And I'm going to go even further, Joe Matthew. It is political malpractice. They should have known that this is going to be what happens if they remove these people. And this is exactly what happens. They are celebrities now. Well, you
2: expel the two uh, black lawmakers and keep the white woman. It does smack of racism, doesn't it?
5: Absolutely. And she said it herself. And, you know, you didn't have to watch it too closely to know that. And it's come back to haunt them.
2: Always learn something when we talk to Rick and Jeannie. Thanks to both of you guys. Our signature panel here on SoundOn, Bloomberg politics contributors for a reason.
5: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions alongside Snaps Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com/techsf.
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Thanks for being with us on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington as Kaylee Lines joins the conversation. It's good to see you, Kaylee. Uh, the, the story about Pentagon leaks mm. is leading our conversation today. We talked about uh, the the, what, 100 pages or so that ended up on Discord. And we're learning more about them. And there's one that is particularly meaningful, I think, to the administration here, because they actually came out today to say it wasn't true. And that's news that Egypt planned to produce 40,000 rockets for Russia, telling officials to keep it secret to avoid problems with the West. That according to the document that was leaked, here's John Kirby, who speaks for the National Security Council on Air Force One today, talking with reporters on their way to Ireland.
6: What I will tell you is we've seen no indication uh, that Egypt is uh, providing uh, lethal weaponry capabilities to Russia. You think it's going to take to track down where these documents came from? Difficult to know, Steve. I mean, uh, obviously we're all working at this very, very hard. Uh, we'd like to get answers as quickly as we can uh, so we can find out uh, you know, where this breach occurred.
2: So they still clearly don't know where these came from or how yeah. many should be trusted.
7: Well, and this is the giant question mark hanging over all of this, right? Because if it was a bad actor, potentially an adversary that leaked these documents, yeah. there's a question of the validity of them, whether they have been altered in any way That's or right. just completely fraudulent. And if some of them are true, how do you then go through and divide what are actually accurate uh, presentations of what the U.S. government and Defense Department is doing and what are not and potentially could be used as propaganda or false information uh Distribution. So this is really a giant question, and it doesn't really seem like we're getting any closer to answers, does it, Joe?
2: Uh, well, no, and and that was abundantly clear in the conversation with John Kirby. Something we wanted to talk to Mark Ginsburg about. The former ambassador uh, to Morocco joins us right now on Bloomberg Sound on Ambassador. you ever heard of anything like this? We can't tell
8: not only where they came from, but whether they're real. Well, this is an unmitigated disaster for the U.S. government. And it's not only a painful uh, uh, leak that is undermining U.S. credibility, but it's also placing at risk the very military effort the United States has been engaged in to support Ukraine. Uh, The documents regarding Ukraine reveal that the Ukrainians are not only suffering from a lack of ammunition, which, of course, many of us have, have known, but that their air defenses now could be exposed uh, to Russian Air Force attacks, which the Russian Air Force has avoided doing ever since the first days of the war. But more importantly, if I may make this point, mm-hmm. the United States government in the guise of President Obama personally pledged after the leak of the Snowden documents, the WikiLeaks documents, yeah. that the United States would no longer spy on U.S. allies, huh. would no longer spy. Mm-hmm. It was a public pledge that the president made, and here is his former vice president's presidential administration mm-hmm. doing just that.
7: So let's talk about how this plays with our allies, especially as the president is going on a trip abroad to the UK. I mean, how difficult is it as an a former ambassador in the U.S. government to make that presentation to our allies and say, hey, we're still friends. Sorry for doing that.
8: Well, let me let me go across the world with you. Uh, the South Korean government is furious, according to the New York Times, that the U.S. that these documents reveal that the U.S. government was uh, spying on national security officials in the president's administration. This is President Yoon's administration. Uh, this is as was quoted by. Uh, someone. This is a super scale security breach because mm-hmm. it not only undermines the respect that the allies have for each other. Look, uh, Defense, Defense Secretary Austin was just in South Korea pledging continued United States cooperation and support. And now this has created a domestic political furor for the uh, South Korean government. Opposition leaders claiming that the Biden administration cannot be trusted.
2: So does this feel like excuse time with the administration suggesting that these documents may have been doctored kind of gives them an out here on on spying on our allies? Or, or is, is that just the, the worst kept secret? It sounds like that's what you're suggesting, Ambassador.
8: Look, I'm very troubled over the fact that the that a uh, administration that was composed of the very people in the Obama administration who are now in charge are essentially violating the very pledge that their own president made. Uh, in his terms so that's point one point two this is embarrassed this administration's integrity it's embarrassed of the fact that we see, we not only can't to keep can't seem to keep a secret but let me give you another example you know the this uh... software that has been violently opposed for its ability to to intercept phone calls and make uh... mobile phones operate that was uh... manufactured by the israelis This Pegasus software? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the Biden administration, in the guise of the president himself, said that the United States would not in any way, shape, or form permit that software to operate in the United States, much less uh, place sanctions on it. Only for us to find out just a few days ago that a secret company set up by the United States contracted with NSO to... uh, uh, retain the Pegasus software for use in the United States. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How can the United States say that, uh, on the one hand, we're, we're, we're going to sanction a company and then turn around and say, oh, by the way, we're doing business with it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it raises questions among our allies about whether or not we are really being truthful about these documents, that they may be false, or that this is just a ruse.
7: Well, but on the point of of whether or not they're real or false, how much cover, if any, does that actually give the U.S. government if if some portion, unknown portion of this is all made up?
8: Well, look, in the end, this too will blow over. This too, our alliances are far too important to let security breaches like this Undermine the very integrity of the most important allies that we have: Australia, South Korea, Israel, etc., and uh, even our, and of course our allies in Europe. So I, your question is valid, but none of us really know whether these documents were doctored or not, enough, mm-hmm. who, and by whom. And the fact that they had been leaked and not intercepted for days, because they were on social media before the U.S. government even realized. Right. Uh, that says a lot more about how much we're monitoring our own secrets. Yeah.
2: Well, Ambassador, not only do you have a, a, a long career in foreign affairs and geopolitics, but you also co-founded the Coalition for a Safer Web, and that's partly why we wanted to talk to you. Is this the tip of the iceberg? Essentially, how many U.S. state secrets live on the dark web right now?
8: They're for sale. Uh, they're and for they're sale. For sale to the highest bidder. And wow. much of it involves the privacy violations of American officials, where they live, their social security numbers, uh, bank accounts, all the things that you and I would never want to see in the hands of criminals are in the dark web. And we monitor uh, not only the dark web, but we monitor extremists who are operating in the dark web, in, in, as well as in what we call encrypted platforms, such as Telegram, Signal, WhatsApp, because many of the extremist groups have u- are using these encrypted platforms in the dark web to undertake criminal activities to fund their operations.
7: Well, in theory, shouldn't the Department of Defense, the U.S. government, know about this and be trying to to plug the holes in the Internet where they see them? I mean, how do you combat this?
8: Well, first of all, it's a violation of U.S. law for them to do that, because uh they and they've been reprimanded by Congress as well as by other, by other organizations for even daring to think that they could seek a backdoor to encrypted uh, platforms, which is one of the reasons why, you may recall that uh, when the when the San Bernardino attack occurred years ago, mm. the terrorist attack and the U.S. government sought a backdoor into Apple's iPhone. Uh, mm. They were not able to get it. The Israelis, actually, of all countries, gave it to the United States, FBI. Uh, there's no magic bullet to uncover what is going on within encrypted dark web platforms. We, we the Coalition for a Safer Web, are about to launch a new initiative, which we can do because we're a private entity, to create avatars to penetrate the, these uh, encrypted platforms. So when you step
2: back and look at this, Ambassador, what is your thought? The Pentagon has a leak problem or the Pentagon is vulnerable to hacks? Or, or is it somewhere in the middle?
8: I think it's somewhere in the middle. And-
2: <laughs> they were clearly listening. <laughs>
8: this happens from time I mean, to time. You still with this, Ambassador? Uh, yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry, you dropped I'm, out for I'm a here. moment
2: there. Okay, I
8: said it's not just the Pentagon, it's also the entire national security network of the U.S. government. Good Lord. I don't know, because these these secret documents were shared across the entire national security network of the United States. We're talking about the CIA. We're talking about the National Security Council of the United States. We're talking mm-hmm. about the National Security Agency. All of the alphabet soup of encrypted and non-encrypted uh, security agencies of the United States. So I I I don't know why anyone is just singularly focused on a Pentagon. There could have been there could have been um, uh, bad actors in any of these other agencies. Yeah, right. Well,
2: well what you're talking about information for sale. I don't, Kaylee. Can you imagine? Are you on Discord, Ambassador? We talked about this. This is this video gaming chat site oh, where yeah. this stuff is emerging. I mean,
8: I, what does that tell you about the years. source? I've been on Discord for years. I love this. It. Is, Discord, Discord is a playground for gamers Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and people, people, who, people who have never heard of it. So when I give presentations about where the bad actors are and I say Discord, they say, oh, you mean like Discord, there's, there's, we have Discord among us? I said, no, 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 that's the name of the platform. <laughs> and I show them videos of gamers who are engaged not only in bad acting but in anti-Semitic extremist activities. I mean the list goes on and on.
7: And, of course, this just comes back to the monitoring uh, question of Discord and all of these other social platforms, all of which are Internet-based, and we know how this goes, the the saying that what happens on the Internet lives forever. I mean, once this information is out there, how can the U.S. government retract it, bring it back, or is this now just secrets that will live forever?
8: uh, We spent a lot of time helping the New Zealand government trying to take down the live streaming of the Christchurch massacre right. several years ago. And to this day, no matter how much we've tried, uh, several of those videos still pop up because the way in which bad actors act, they're able to not only encrypt these videos, but digitally alter their um, their footprints so that they pop up on different language uh, websites. Uh, It should come as no surprise to the American public and your listeners that the social media companies don't have any legal obligation to monitor their sites, much less to take down any of the content that we consider to be adverse. They only have a moral obligation as long as Section 230 of the Communications Uh Decency Act protects them.
2: That's a whole other conversation, too, that we've spent some <laughs> yeah, time on on 230. Ambassador, you should just come in and spend an hour with us at some point. Is Discord the poster child, or is it one of many?
8: No, uh, uh, actually, the the biggest problem that we have is from the uh, mobile app called Telegram, which is a major supermarket for secrets, the part purveyance of secrets and the marketing of extremist activities.
2: A supermarket.
7: This is wild.
2: I want to take his class. Uh, Whatever presentation you've got, (laughs) I am in, Ambassador.
8: Uh, I'm honored to be even considered to be wanting to be your professor.
2: (laughs) He's the former U.S. Ambassador to Morocco, a longtime U.S. diplomat with a great career of experience he's speaking from here and also founder and president of the Coalition of the Safer Web. The Honorable Mark Ginsburg, Thank you, Ambassador, for the insights today. Come back and see us here on Bloomberg. Remarkable conversation. Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern time at Bloomberg.com. The
0: countdown has begun.